this is Contra Radio from Contra.Scot. Welcome, dear parishioners, to the Sunday Salmon. What a week it's been for conference life in Scotland. I'm not just talking about Scotiacon, the national furry gathering in Glasgow. At least as distinguished was a meeting of Green Party councillors and activists to protest the cuts to local council budgets and, thence, to workers' pay, jobs and services. One matter that wasn't on the agenda. It was the Greens themselves who had voted for all these cuts in order to shore up their own government with the SNP. A Scottish Green Party trade union group circular read... Join us tonight to show your support for council workers, council services and green councillors who are now facing the reality of massive cuts to local authority budgets across Scotland. I'm not concerned here with the motivations of green politicians. Those aren't mysterious. They want to promote themselves, get re-elected and keep climbing the career ladder. The natural way you'd do that, in a country like Scotland with a liberal market economy, a largely offshore capitalist class which desires ready access to labour, markets and natural resources, and a broadly left-of-centre public political consensus, is to legislate for capital and talk left. This is how you get Ross Greer lobbying for big oil, cutting funding to local government, and then turning up on aggrieved workers' picket lines with a raised fist. This, as I say, is not mysterious. You'll find behaviour just as crass, from Labour and SNP politicians. The mystery is a Green Party membership and voting base that, so far, seems untroubled by the painful contradictions of its party in power. Even an exhausted Scottish Labour and heavily centralised SNP have found time for good old internal scraps in recent years. The Greens, by contrast, have seen a harmonisation of internal life. There was a time when people spoke of a left and right wing of the party, but no more. The secret to this phenomenon may be found in the class from which the Greens draw sustenance. In an era where class dealignment, the tendency of old class-based voting blocks to fragment and break down, has thrown the old conservative and especially social democratic parties into chaos, the Greens have maintained a stricter class profile. Their base is among students and graduates struggling to cope with inflation and private tenancy, and lower to mid-tier professionals, particularly in the third sector and parts of the public sector like education and the arts. It huddles in some of the leafier suburbs, but also the gentrifying neighbourhoods of cities. The ideology of many in this social layer reflects both the relative powerlessness of these middling strata in the face of capitalist monopolies, and their sense of superiority over those a few notches down the social scale. Much has been made of the hipster aesthetic and its attendant woke morality cults and pseudo-radical politics. Indeed, these ingredients, though restricted to a minority of the population, have become important to the reproduction of social order in many Western countries. But in truth, these are new manifestations of much older themes, moral, cultural and political, that have obsessed the lower middling sort since the inception of mass society. In the 19th and especially 20th centuries, the intelligentsia blossomed from a tiny strata attached first to religious institutions and elite universities and newspapers into a much greater force, churned out by state-directed education and market specialisation. 
It was this intelligentsia that provided the officer class for the vast profusion of political movements and identities that arrived with modernity. Republicanism, radical liberalism, various branches of socialism, anti-colonial nationalism, fascism and Islamism, and many more, all depended on the intelligentsia for leadership. Despite the obvious differences between these movements, all were marked by the preoccupations of the teacher, the lawyer, the high-skilled engineer, the journalist and the artist, especially where capitalist breakdown, church prejudice or colonial administration stifled the emergence of the brain worker. Today, the middling sore are under pressure again, from the collapse of middle-class industries like journalism, higher education and some branches of tech. Ongoing massification clobbers the middle class with a constant threat to its sense of superiority its need to dissociate itself from the mainstream of wage earners. The intelligentsia is itself now a mass social class, swamping individuals in uniformity, promoting competition between its own members for dwindling opportunities. In every generation since the mid-19th century, the middle strata have developed a critique of the emergent capitalist order. The features of this critique have remained relatively stable, or at least maintained a common flavour from each era to the next. These features correspond to the position the intelligentsia finds itself in. It has been and remains anti-capitalist in a backward-looking and non-committal way, expressing a distrust in mass society. Suspicion is directed both at the state and private corporations, but it frequently resolves in a hatred of the mass man of capitalist society, the generality of the population. This mass is vulgar, consumerist, conformist and dislodged from the natural order by a synthetic lifestyle. The common person has, the middle-class anti-capitalist believes, learned to love the hierarchy of industrial society, enjoy the crumbs swept from the master's table in the form of privileges on the basis of caste. The social transformation the intelligentsia yearns for is a simpler world, more in tune with the earth and her rhythms. It is a society which has disgorged itself of masculine arrogance, acquisitive materialism, popular mendacity and the final trappings of both tradition and high culture. This revolution is unrealisable, of course. It always has been. Since the middle 1800s, its demagogues howled at the masses to draw attention to their programme. We can be glad in a way that modern disciples seem to lack the impulse for proselytism. The Scottish Greens, for example, seem quite content to keep to their own. They want to maintain a class niche in the population, and to that end have to feed its delusions. A different kind of world is being built, but only in the heart of the believer. It matters very little that the real policy is Scotland, the mass sale of Scotland's natural resources at knockdown prices to global oil monopolies, when the rhetoric is just transition. Ross Greer's constant demands to, quote, abolish capitalism, ring louder in the middle-class ghetto than pay cuts for low-income council staff. Forget the appeals for national energy companies, a bottle-and-can deposit scheme seems beyond our revolutionaries. The slogans and manifesto pledges appeal to the utopian self-image of the party base. They aren't a call to action in the world. The green base, then, is small, but class pure and hard. It's currently looking less for material results than moral validation, itself a valuable commodity in the world of professional credentials. This might also explain why the party has so viciously defended its capacities for a certain kind of class-orientated public relations, to the expense, for example, of Andy Whiteman, 
Can anyone else come up with a reason why the most earnest left-wing liberal in the country was papped like a red-hot frying pan? Did he not threaten a key line of communication between the party machine and its base? So far, the enormous contradiction between image and reality hasn't done damage to the Greens. One suspects that, for a life-threatening internal schism, you need some kind of real-class division in your party base. Labour had one to lose in Scotland in 2014, and the so-called Red Wall in 2019. The Tories had one to lose, in the more conservative layers of the middle class, last year with the Trust budget. The SNP have built in a mostly ex-Labour base that it can lose through prolonged frustration. I'm in two minds though. You know earlier I mentioned that green attacks on low-paid council workers are unlikely to puncture its base. The same could be said for the failure to secure engineering jobs through Scotland or tackle drug deaths. That has its limits, as the pain of falling buying power and falling expectations snakes its way higher up the food chain. I know plenty of teaching union members who won't be putting their vote the Greens way next election. That's a long-term strategy of cultivating links with the education unions placed under some considerable strain. It'll be one to watch. The Scottish Greens may yet prove an object lesson in just how far class dealignment might proceed and how reliable even a cultivated class base withstands the present ailing of capitalism. Want more like this? Subscribe to Contra Radio on our SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up to our regular newsletter at contour.substack.com and find great articles and more at contour.scot. We really rely on listeners like you to help us grow. In return, you get access to exclusive content and events by joining our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash contrascott.com.